0: Hello, and in Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life today, we'll continue with Galatians and look at a exegetically thorny section in Galatians 3, 15 through 18. Uh, And despite some of the tricky issues, it's an important passage in terms of how the argument drives forward. For it's in this little section Paul introduces the question of how the law relates to the promises made to Abraham. And this is something which he'll expand right through to the end of the chapter. It's really the key idea of the remainder of Galatians 3. And in disambiguating some of the issues we see once more how central the notion of life emerging from death is for paul what it has to do with abraham and again how it makes the argument go forward um, and um, hurtles us towards some very important conclusions well the section in galatians three fifteen through 18 is in one sense fairly straightforward uh, in the sense that it makes a a fairly uh, simple point at least a point that's simple within the context of Paul's argument however it does so in traditionally convoluted Pauline fashion now the real problem i think lies in galatians 3:16 about which one scholar has suggested there may well be 250 different ways of reading it don't worry we're not going to look into any of those It's partly difficult because it seems that Paul is allowing potentially uh, a very critical Christological conclusion here to rest on whether a particular noun is in the plural or in the singular. He's arguing whether the passage that he quotes from the Hebrew Bible reads seed in the singular or seeds plural. It comes from the Greek word sperma, which can also be translated descendant. Either way, it's tricky because the word seed is a word like group. It's singular grammatically, but it implies a plurality. This is further complicated by the fact that Paul uses the term seed elsewhere to refer to a group. And so it's not as if he's unaware of the grammatical details. A second problem lies in demonstrating with any precision where the biblical citation in Galatians 3.16 actually comes from. There are a number of verses which it could refer to. About the only clear thing from this whole seed versus seeds argument is that it's aimed at refuting the prospect of the rightful heir of the promise God made to Abraham is Israel, Paul is at pains to make it clear that the only rightful heir of the promise to Abraham is Jesus. Then by extension everyone who is quote unquote in Jesus or in Christ as is Paul's favourite term is a co-heir with Christ. However, as I've said, this connection between Abraham and Christ is an essential part of the argument and it cannot be overlooked. And I think once we consider how it is that Jesus is Abraham's true seed, unstitching some of the thorny details becomes a somewhat less daunting prospect. Well, With that in mind, let's read the passage. Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise." Well, the context of Galatians 3.15 sets the stage for what Paul is about to do. First, he makes the general case, that is, that standard contractual jurisprudence allows that once the terms of a legally binding contract are established, you can't make 11th hour amendments to it. Now, there's some debate as to precisely what contract law Paul is referring to. Is it Roman? Is it Jewish? Or is it something else? I don't think that matters so much for now. The point he's making is a general point. And the point is that to ensure fairness in contract law, once a contract is drawn up, you can't change it at the last minute because that's not fair on the other party. If you change the terms of the contract and the contract now suddenly becomes unfair for one party, they don't have time to to make other changes to their life or situation in order to make the contract fair, then that's just not right. But then having made this general case, Paul tries to apply this general case to the specific case of Israel's covenant history, that is, to the specific contract between God and Abraham. Well, according to Galatians 3.16, the promise was made to Abraham and his seed in the singular. So the first tricky thing is nailing down where the biblical quote in Galatians 3.16 comes from. Now, a number of scholars have shown that the word for seed or descendant in Genesis sometimes refers to a community, that is the people of God, and other times it refers to an individual. Indeed, in Genesis 3.15, it almost certainly refers to an individual. And oftentimes, in Genesis, that individual is an individual son of Abraham. Now, here I'm indebted to the work of a scholar called T. Desmond Alexander, who's argued, I think rather persuasively, that Paul is quoting from Genesis 22.18. Now, part of his argument depends on the use of the word seed, somewhere in the psalms i think in psalm 72 and other places but he's made a fairly persuasive case that of all these passages in genesis 20 in genesis which talk about the seed genesis 22 18 seems to be the most appropriate and here the seed almost certainly refers to an individual And given the context of Genesis 22, 16 through 18, that individual is almost certainly Isaac. So why would Paul suggest then that the seed in Genesis 22, literally Isaac, can somehow be understood as Christ? How can the promises have been spoken to Abraham and his seed and that seed be Christ? Well, once more, I suggest that Abraham experienced the blessing of life in the birth of Isaac and this was a miraculous movement from death to life. Now later this very same framework is recapitulated by Jesus. Jesus was raised by God and this too was a miraculous movement from death to life. Now, I think this story is further corroborated by the language earlier in Genesis 22. This is the passage, of course, where Abraham was destined to sacrifice his son Isaac after having bound him to the wood. In Genesis 2 verse 12, the divine voice stops Abraham from bringing the knife down upon his son with the words, quote, do not lay a hand on the boy nor do anything to him. For now I know that you are a God-fearer, and you have not withheld your son, your one and only son, from me, end quote. The resonances with the Christ event are unmistakable. So Paul can now turn to the specific case. If in a human-to-human transaction, last-minute changes to the contract can't be made, how much less changeable can a contract be? when one of the signatories is God himself. And so he says in verse 17 that once the covenant between Abraham and God was ratified, the addition of the law, some 430 years later, doesn't alter the terms of the covenant. If it could, then, as he says in Galatians 3:18, this would be a denial of what God promised to Abraham. That is, if a miraculous endowment of life could come from the law introduced 430 years later then this entire narrative of god promising abraham a son even in his old age would become null and void and he precisely says that god did promise to abraham so again we see that the thrust of this section is not complex The overall theme that Paul's trying to argue is that the introduction of the law of Moses does not in any way invalidate the contract between God and Abraham. However, there's more to the story, which is why he argues it like this. The promise to Abraham was a premonition of a new covenant. The promise to Abraham was the earliest covenant in this scheme, And it was brought to bear through life-giving. The contract was fulfilled with the birth of Isaac. And so the new covenant would also be ratified through life-giving, miraculous life-giving. This, of course, through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in a couple of verses time in Galatians 3.21, which we'll come back to in the next podcast, this conclusion will be reinforced. And so once more, life emerging from death becomes the foundational issue for the way that Paul argues his case in Galatians. A very important motif for Paul is that in Christ, God demonstrates his faithfulness to the promise. Indeed, there are some scholars who Take the phrase that Paul uses a few times in Romans, and again in, uh, in Philippians, the righteousness of God. And they actually translate that passage as God's covenant faithfulness. In Christ, God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his covenant. The promises that he made have found their fulfillment in Christ. There are very similar sentiments in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 20, where Paul effectively says that every promise is answered yes in Christ. And as believing people, we never need to be in two minds about the promises of God. As believers, Christ is the evidence that God does what he says he will do. Goodness knows that over the long and winding and checkered history of Israel that the prophets and poets who recorded this history did so telling a story that was in some way awaiting an ending. The ministry, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is the very ending that that story awaited. In times of uncertainty, it's important that we look to Christ as the fulfillment of divine promise. Christ is how we know that God will be faithful to the things he's promised to us, and that's especially true at times when the world looks a little bleak, a little nebulous, a little murky, and when so often the things, the conventions that we put our trust in, let us down. And at those times, especially, I think, it's important that we trust in God. And indeed, turning to Christ at times when life seems uncertain is something which we do and something which I think God permits. God permits times of uncertainty so that we'll trust him, and so that we won't trust things which are transient, which are here today and gone tomorrow. Paul wants us to understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus is proof positive that God never reneges on a promise. Now he may not fulfil his promises in quite the way we expect him to, and sometimes we even get irritated when he doesn't do precisely what we want him to. But God sees way beyond the few inches in front of our faces, and the kind of trust that God demands, he always rewards. He may not reward it in the time frame that you'd like or in the way that you'd like. But in Christ, every promise of God finds its yes. In Christ, this long, dark night of Israel's history is finally finding its happy ending.